Hey everyone, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down with Mr. Preston Pish today, and we're going to be diving into the Pish series, where our aim is to externalize Mr. Pish's mind for the world, um, specifically related to two books, uh, which kind of two two avenues of thought that. Preston and I discussed prior to the show, I read them. I know Preston had read them previously, and then we've kind of gone back and forth about um, really what these books are. And then we're hoping to just dive into them and um, get to the gist of, of what's going on. So the two books are The Brain by David Eagleman and The Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukov. So Preston, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Maybe we could just start out talking about those two books and why why we chose them. You know, when we were thinking about what we do here, my uh, my main objective was to get as cosmic as possible in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you pick good books. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Are, are we tying any of this into Bitcoin as we're going? You know, it's funny. I always find ways to tie things back into Bitcoin, but this is, yeah. um, I'm Let's sure we will. Happens. Yeah. All right. Let's just see what the heck happens. But so maybe if you just give us a little background, like when did you read these books? When did you read The Brain? Uh, which we're going to be focused um, on The Brain today. So maybe we'll just start with that one. So The Brain... Uh, the exploration of all the books that I've kind of read on the brain came later than the Zukov, the seat of the soul book, uh, which I read that uh, I think after I came back from my first rotation in Afghanistan. So it was more than a decade ago that I read that book. Um, the, the, the one that Gary wrote the seat of the soul. Um, but it had a, I felt like it had a tremendous impact on me just, uh, morally ethically I, I don't know how to really just foundationally and then uh on the brain uh that was the the david eagleman book was not one of the first books that i've read um there's another book that i read that i really like it's called uh, consciousness in the brain uh it's by stannis uh i, for, I forget his last name but just fantastic book one of the earlier ones that i read on the brain and just kind of was fascinating to me but the, the reason I kind of went down this path of trying to uh, study and learn as much about the brain as possible is because in, you know, investing, you're always trying to find out what your cognitive biases are. Mm. It's something that uh, people know. I'm a hardcore, like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger fan, even though they're not the most <laughs> popular guys in the Bitcoin space. In fact, I, I might even argue they're, they're hated in the Bitcoin space. Um, I have a lot of respect for those guys. They, they taught me a whole lot about so many different things in life, especially when it comes to investing. And one of the things that I noticed about them uh, outside of just the book on the brain is they just read like maniacs. Mm -hmm. uh, I was at a shareholders meeting one year and they were talking about their two replacements that are going to replace them there at, at Berkshire. And, uh, and, a, a person asked, how did you select these people? Like out of all these investors in, on the planet that would die to come in and, and be 
your replacement to you and Charlie? How did you select these two? And his uh, Warren's response was, they were the only two guys that we could find that read as many books as, as Charlie and I. And <laughs> wow. that, that really stuck with me. Like that was something that, uh, you know, and it, it's something that I already knew was super important. Like anytime you go to the Berkshire meeting, he publishes his reading list of all the books that he read for the year. And there's probably, I don't know, 30 books on the list every year at the shareholders meeting. And he has like a really short description as to why he read those books. And so he's been doing this for decades. Um, Warren, specifically, yeah. and Charlie, some, some might even argue Charlie might be more well-read than, than Warren. Um, and so I learned that very early on a decade ago, plus that if I wanted to be a great investor, I needed to read like a maniac. And going down that path of trying to read um, as many books as I can in a year, and, and what I shoot for is eh, two to four per month, I would say is, is kind of the pace that I'm, that I'm on and have been on for a decade plus. Um, what I've learned through that experience, especially when it comes to investing, is the cognitive biases are huge, a huge part of it. And so what I kind of came to the conclusion of it was, is, hey, I can read a book about cognitive biases, uh, biases, or however you want to pronounce that. Um, or I could even go a step deeper and just try to understand the mechanics of how my brain works at a fundamental level. Mm. And maybe that actually might help me understand why we have these um the, this conditioning that kind of happens in your brain that leads you to make cognitive mistakes. Um, and so that, that kind of led me on this, this really kind of fascination of like, how does the brain work? How does it get wired? How does, how do you condition it? And um, so, yeah, this first book that we're going to talk about today, in, in my opinion, uh, David Eagleman is probably one of the best authors for a book on the brain because he makes it just so accessible. And I'm sure you kind of agreed after mm. reading this book, he, he makes it really kind of easy to understand without getting bogged down into all the the difficult terminology and and kind of all that stuff. So yeah. that's why I, I thought this was a great book. Agreed completely. He made it very simple, very accessible. I thought the book was very readable. It was just... Um, not you would expect a neuroscience book to maybe be a little dense, but it's not that at all. It was just very, yeah. very easy read, but um, teaching a lot along the way. So it's it's yeah. really good. Um, I'm gonna hold up the book here so people can see which one. Yeah, there it we're is. Talking about the brain, here. Yeah. the story of you, because he has a bunch of books out there on the brain, and I would I would tell you this is the best overarching, just general purpose kind of introduction to it. Yeah. And admittedly, I haven't actually read that much about the brain or, or neuroscience or, or cognitive science. Um, I've read some about psychology, but this is more focused on the brain itself. It's neural architecture, which I, I found mm -hmm. it was new to me. Um, and I, like you, I'm a big fan of reading as well. I've kind of been a, a, a lifelong reader, but I've gone in spurts while I'll I will read 30 to 50 books a year, like kind of the pace you're on now. And then I'll, yeah. I'll back off for some time, but the past, I think five years, especially getting into Bitcoin, um, it's really accelerated. So I'm, I'm on the book a week course right now. And I just, my reading list is longer than ever, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it just keeps going. And it's so important to, to pay attention to, 
the recommendations of people who are heavy readers. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I don't mean to sound like a snob, but like I have people come up to me and give me a book recommendation all the time. Yeah. And not to, not to sound like a jerk, but like my response is how many books a year do you read? Mm-hmm. And if they say, Oh, you know, one or two or three or whatever, I, I don't really put too much credence in the book recommendation. Right. Cause it's probably just something that they kind of enjoyed and they, they read it. And so like, here it is. But like, if you talk to somebody like a person I really respect with book recommendations is Jeff Booth, obviously yeah. just, we just did a segment with him. Uh, we share book recommendations back and forth all the time uh, because I know he's filtered through hundreds of books. Um, and so if yeah. he tells me this one, this one was really influential, it's, it's kind of important for me to kind of pay attention to. Yeah. There's a lot more signal if someone's been through a lot of books. Yeah. And I, the, what I find so fascinating about reading and this book gets into that actually is we are, it's a way of self-programming. We're actually yes. consciously deciding who we're going to become tomorrow, right? You like you said, you can read a book on cognitive biases or whatever, and you will just be better about not, you know, not giving into those cognitive biases tomorrow or next year, whenever that, that new you uh, takes shape. Um, and I agree too on the, the book recommendations. The other, as far as taking it from people that read a lot, the other little trick I use is I tend to be a little more biased towards the classics. I guess that's sort of a Lindy effect thing of a book's, you know, very still popular after 20 years plus that, that tends to give it a little more credence, uh, in my book, so to speak. Um, so maybe with that background in mind, maybe we'll just jump in. And I I just mentioned this concept of self-programming through reading. And that's actually how he describes the brain itself early on in the book. Um, and I'll just read a little bit here. He says, quote, in a sense, the process of becoming who you are is defined by carving back the possibilities that were already present. You become who you are, not because of what grows in your brain, but because of what is removed, unquote. So it's as if we start the brain, you know, has a lot of neuroplasticity when you're young, which just means it, it's got a lot of potentiality can go any direction. But then learning is actually kind of the, the carving back of that potential and specializing it towards some specific aim based on your training or reading or, or whatever it is um, you've devoted yourself towards. Um, which is, yeah, like what did you, how did you see that? It, it, it's almost like the brain is a map of your experience in a way. So this idea that you're talking about, honestly is probably one of the most profound insights that I would say I've learned in the last 10 years is this idea of programming yourself. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, Tony Robbins uh, learned from a guy named Jim Rowan and Jim Rowan was really big on this idea of programming yourself and programming your subconscious and um, I don't know that they would necessarily describe it that way, but um, in, in another fantastic example of this is there's a book called uh, Think and Grow Rich, which uh, is a major best-selling book. A lot of people don't realize that the book was actually a series of books uh, written by um, uh, Carnegie. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, not by Carnegie. Carnegie was the, was the influencer 
who actually uh, opened the doors to like 500 influencers mm. of their times to the to the writer of uh, Think and Grow Rich, and that was actually a summarized book that was that was kind of um, like an executive summary of the series. And this Napoleon, was Napoleon, Napoleon Napoleon Hill, Hill, I think. Yeah, yeah, Napoleon Hill, and um, uh. What's fascinating about this is it really gets at the idea of what you're talking about, which is programming yourself. And in that book, in Think and Grow Rich, he talks about this idea that every night before you go to bed, you read this list of things that you're going to accomplish. It's not like you think you're going to accomplish it. You tell yourself you are going to accomplish it. And you're, you're basically telling your subconscious that this is what you are going to do, almost like you're writing a, a script for a, for a program a programming script. So when we when we start to dig into how the brain works, you have and and just so people listening, there are there might be somebody who is professionally, a, you know, a doctor in this area or whatever. So I am not an expert in this. I just talk about the very high level things that I've read about in books and I and it's meaningful to me. So I want to preface everything I'm saying here with some of this, you know, what we're about to talk about. Uh, so you got your subconscious and then you have the, the conscious area that you actually have access to, which is a very small portion of everything that's happening inside of your brain. Um, this is, you know, people would say this is in the frontal lobe of your brain. This is the neocortex area that if I tell you a math problem and you solve it in your head and I, and I then ask you, how did, what were the steps you went through to do that? You're using that portion of your neocortex uh, to, to solve that. At the same time that you're thinking about that, you have all of this activity that's happening in the background that you have no conscious access to, like zero. Like you got like your brain, it's controlling your heartbeat, it's controlling the, the, the secretion in your stomach. You know, you got neurons down your spinal cord that are controlling and, and making these types of decisions. You got uh, stuff like down at, at the core level, the bangle ganglia of your of your um, the basal ganglia of your of your brain. It's controlling this uh, this flight or or flight uh, the, like the the threats that you're you're feeling and how you're emotionally reacting. Like all of those things are happening all at the same time inside your brain and it's making all these decisions like you're looking at me right now and your visual field is processing whether there's an anomaly happening or not and your subconscious is not flowing anything up into your neocortex to say hey there there's some weird person standing behind preston right now like that filtering process is happening in the background it's happening naturally and it's it's going up into your into your thalamus and it's it's not passing through a filter to trigger you to come off of whatever it is you're thinking about right now right so i think that's first and foremost an important thing to describe for a person because if you don't have conscious access to these things you'll never think about them even being real right like when you get in your car and you drive to your work or whatever and maybe you're listening to an audiobook and it's a 20 minute drive and you just get there and you don't even really remember making any of the turns or any of that stuff it's because you have conditioned your brain on the route the first time you did that route that wasn't the case you were looking at various houses you were looking at certain 
like landmarks to help you navigate that course. But after you've done it 10 times, now you, you have pushed that activity. You have conditioned the neurons in your subconscious to be able to handle that entire route. And now you don't even have to think about doing it because your brain has been conditioned to do those things. So as you think about that, that example, and you start asking yourself, what else is going on in my brain that's on autopilot because I've done it so many times. Like when you think about the activity of just using a fork to pick up food on your plate and, and bring it to your mouth, the amount of neurons that have to fire mm-hmm. in order to do that activity in a very smooth, quick, concise way, you do not think about that. That is not getting pushed into your neocortex to, to think about. Um, and so let's just take that idea and talk about programming yourself. So uh, James Clear has a book about habits, uh, Atomic Habits. Highly, highly recommend this book. Uh, there's another one called The Power of Habits. Amazing story in The Power of Habits that the book opens up with. Talks about a gentleman. Uh, I'm sure everybody's seen the movie 50 First Dates with Adam Sandler, where he doesn't remember uh anything like the next day. I haven't seen the movie for a while, but it's something like that. Well, there's a real life example in the start of this book of a person who has this condition in their brain where they can't remember anything other than like in the now. But what's so fascinating about this person is as they're sitting there watching TV and the the book opens up with the story, the person's sitting there watching TV and they stand up and they go into the kitchen and they open the refrigerator and they get something out and they come back and sit down and they're there eating their food. The person who's interviewing this or, you know, doing an analysis on this person said, uh, you know, how did you know, like, where's, where is, which door, there's like four doors in this room, which door leads you to the kitchen? And the person couldn't answer the question. I have no idea, right? Hmm. they, They just watched the person get up and go into the kitchen and get some food out of the refrigerator and come right back. It wasn't like he opened four doors. And the last one was, he just knew how to get there, right? Well, what's happening, what's happening is, is the subconscious is running the program that he didn't, he wasn't thinking about, like, it's just like his body was telling him he was hungry, he went in there and he did it. So how is something like this possible? Well, it's because you have all these programs that are running in your subconscious all day long. Now, think about how powerful it is if you're able to start shaping that in a way where you are actively controlling what programs are running back there. Um, Because I think a lot of people have no idea how much their environment has already coded so much of this, this subconscious behavior that's running in the background. Mm -hmm. And this starts so early in your life. So here's another example. If you watch a young child, like age three, four years old. Okay. And let's say that there's a snake in the backyard. And let's say that you as the parent are deathly scared of snakes. Okay. This is what you'll see the child do. The child will go out into the backyard and let's say the parent is in the backyard with the child and the parent doesn't realize that there's a snake over in the corner. The child will go over there. They'll see the snake they're not scared of the snake at all because they've never encountered it before. And, and this process is how a child starts coding its brain, its subconscious brain on, on its environment. 
The child will see the snake. It'll know that it's, that it's not normal. The child will turn and look back at the parent. And what the, what the child is doing is they're trying to extract the program, the subconscious program from the parent. And in that moment where the kid's looking back at the parent, the parent's saying, why, are, why is the child looking at me? The, ch- the parent's then looking for why is the child acting non-normal, right? Mm. The parent then sees the snake. Now, depending on what the program, the subconscious program that's running on the parent is, is now how the child's about to be programmed, okay? So the parent, let's say the parent hates snakes. The parent screams, right? That the, the shows this expression of fear all over their face. And the child now immediately says, snake, bad, scary. And that program is now you know, running in the subconscious of the child. Now, if you had the exact opposite, let's say the parent is a snake handler of, of a carnival or something like that. And, and the parent maybe knows this snake right? And the parent looks at the child with a, with a smile on its face and, and kind of like this hand gesture, like, go ahead, go ahead. What's the child going to do? The child's going to go up there and, and you know, some, I, I'm not an expert at snakes. I have no <laughs> idea what, what this is, right? But the child could go up there and maybe have a, just a perfectly fine interaction with this snake that's tame or whatever. And now that child's going to grow up or have future interactions. The next time it sees a snake, it's going to think that there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And um, that's the start of their conditioning, right? Um, now they're going to have more interactions with their environment as they grow older. And that's going to continue to shape how those programs run in the back of the subconscious with this person. And so this is just one example of the countless examples that happen throughout a person's lifetime right. of how they condition their brain to run in the background. It's so damn fascinating, frankly, because you start to see, and, and P, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this actually, where <clears throat> we think today that most of our actions are like, I think a thought and then I carry out an action. But yeah. in, if you zoom all the way back to caveman times, it's like we were sort of taking action based on impulses right? To eat, to reproduce, to find shelter, whatever it may be. And it's those patterns of action get passed from person to person, you know, as you said, predominantly from parent to offspring, but also from one another, right? People you may work with, your friends, whatever. And you tend to run with dogs, run with dogs, you get fleas. Yeah. Like the whole, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Birds of a feather kind of thing. Right. Yes. Um, and we we pick up these programs, right? We 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 whether we consciously realize it or not, we'll pick up these patterns of action, and they become incorporated into our own behavior, our own patterns of action over time, such that each of us ends up being this plurality of personalities. We have all these sub personalities or programs running in us at all times. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. 
As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So I was just saying that we, we end up with these this plurality of, of subpersonalities running in all of us at the same time. And this is what, um, you know, Peterson refers to these as spirits, essentially. So like, each, like you may be inhabited by the spirit of your father and your father may be running the spirit of his father, right? We're all passing around these programs with one another. Um, and it's just a really interesting way to think about human interaction and relation is that it's not all, and we may not be conscious of these, to your point, we may not be conscious. We're often not conscious of these programs. We're really just, we have these patterns of action that have been etched into our mind. Um, I, think that's, I think that's the key point, which is the, I, I think that these programs that are running in the background are way more, like significantly more uh, influential on on our behavior and how we interact in our environment than what we think our conscious portion that we're playing around with and interpreting on the fly is. And, yes. and if I was going to say a percent, I'm, I'm like, I'm like 20% to 80%. Yeah. Right. I think it is so much more powerful than people realize. Um, and, and even if, you know, there's no way to know the percent, Whatever it is, I would I would tell people listening to this to really don't take your subconscious for granted or or underestimate how powerful it is. Yes, and explore what what that might be. Um, yeah, I think what you're going to find is is just kind of fascinating and and maybe even a little concerning for, for how powerful <laughs> it is. This calls to mind too that the I think it was a Tim Ferriss quote where he said, "You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with." Yeah. So, so we have to be selective, um, yeah, about what patterns we are adopting. Yeah. Um, and then, so to tie this back into the, the reading piece, we do have this power, though, to consciously reprogram ourselves. So we can conscious, the, the visual I have is like a little nozzle or aperture that we get to consciously direct that feeds information or patterns into this subconscious that accumulates over time. The subconscious ends up running the show, right? That that dictates most of our action, but it's through the the selective placement of this conscious awareness that we can actually right. reprogram the unconscious over time, and that's where you know something it's super like reflex, it's super reflexive. Right? Yes. So, let's just say you come up with some goal or objective in your life, and and. You know, when, when you're looking at essays that people write when they're going to college, I think one of the reasons a lot of colleges focus on the essay a lot is because they know that if somebody had an event or some type of circumstance in their, in their past that has shaped their worldview, and then it aligns with some type of uh, mission or objective that they're trying to accomplish in their life, 
they know that there's going to be this reflexive loop. Well, maybe they don't know, but but evidence would suggest that these these types of people go on to do and accomplish these things because there's this reflexive loop where they've set their sights on something and they keep they can't get it out of their head because they've had this emotional reaction or event that's shaped them in their life that's led them to want to do this thing or accomplish this mission and then it sets up this massive like reflexive loop of what they're what they do have conscious access to what they're programming their subconscious to to do on a daily basis mm-hmm. and then it has this this feedback loop that just keeps compounding on itself yeah and they get the better they get at the the thing whatever it is they tend to be more yeah. rewarded in the marketplace for that thing so then they're yeah. getting external feedback to yeah it it's very very reflexive i think it's a great point um and i, I think two of the if say you're learning to play piano or you know at first it's a it's a very conscious effort it's very slow very deliberate and you're you're actually in training those pathways to do these things more effortlessly and then over time you get a little faster a little faster a little faster and then eventually it's just second nature right you don't have to think about anything so there's this there's a deep principle here i think where we're trying to make important operations we're trying to push them into the subconscious so that we can free the consciousness up to focus on other things. And we get to, we stuff this unconsciousness with more and more programs, which makes us more and more versatile and competent in the world. So uh, a couple of things I want to talk about here. So I, I don't know if uh, the, in the book that you read, did they talk about the sea squirts? Did you ever, is that uh, something that I can't remember which book this is from? I don't, I don't recall. So, so the sea squirts is an example of why do you even have a brain, right? Cause it's, it's such a fundamental question that if you can arrive at some type of answer, it also sheds a significant amount of understanding of all the various lobes and why they're there and all that kind of stuff. So, the the one book that i read it talks about this sea squirt which is a really unique uh animal in in the sea that in at the first part of its life i think it's it's a larva or some sort okay it it has a brain and it is mobile and it it tries to find a site where it will set up shop and, and uh, you know, attach itself to like coral or whatever to never leave again. Like it, it will set up shop there for the rest of its life. Once, once it arrives and it sets up shop on the coral or whatever, it's one of its first acts is to eat its brain. <laughs> okay. First thing it does, it, it sets up and then it literally eats its brain. And so this, this is a really unique situation that really isn't found throughout nature any, anywhere else in nature. And the, uh, the conclusion, at least by neuroscientists and some people that have written these books, um, is that when you think about a, a, a brain in a, an animal or human or whatever, it's, a lot, it's to allow them to have dynamic programming 
beyond what the DNA can satisfy so that it can mm. handle a dynamic environment. Hmm. Okay. So think about a human being. Like, I don't know where you were born and raised, but I suspect that's not where you're at right now. That's right. right. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you've, you've lived all these experiences. You've gone to all these different places. You've been confronted with situations that have been life-threatening situations. I know I have. And I have a brain that has allowed me to handle that dynamic input of data to the senses that I'm equipped with, eyes, ears, nose, the mm -hmm. cochlea in your ears, right? The, like, oh, you've got so many more senses than five senses. Like you can just go into the stomach alone and you got so many dang senses down there, like sensing the types of food, the molecules, do I need to secrete this type of acid or this type of base to decompose? Like, I mean, dude, it's just insane the amount of sensors that are happening inside your body, constantly processing this and then feeding it to all these neurons clear down your spine up into your brain. And then your brain is making all these decisions to like do this and you have no access to any of this. Right? So when we think about that and why do we have to be able to basically write dynamic code on the fly and more importantly, as we're, living this environment and anytime i see a red light i just immediately stop subconsciously whether mm. i was actually even realizing i was coming to an intersection or not is because my brain is optimized everybody's brain is optimized to push as much as possible back into the subconscious mm -hmm. so that i can handle in the front frontal lobe more capacity for dynamic data that could potentially be an opportunity or a threat to my body so that I can continue to dynamically operate in my environment, right? That's why we've got our brain. So when you, when you understand that, when you understand that, that why, which is the big why, right? If we're going to zoom out to like a 50,000 foot view, that's the real why. You can understand how a person is equipped now to make mistakes because in this process of trying to push everything and anything into the subconscious so that it can just dynamically do those tasks mm -hmm. while you're trying to do the new stuff that's that's constantly coming through your environment feed um you can understand uh why a person might see something like a perfect example i'm sure many people have seen this youtube video where they make you count the passes of the basketball have you ever seen oh, yeah. this? the selective attention experiment the selective yeah. attention right and so a person is watching that and they don't see that there's a gorilla that's walking right yeah. in the background of the of the video feed and so like why is that happening because the person was told to count the passes yeah and your brain is optimized especially in your the part that you have conscious access to to only have um when you're really paying close attention to things that uh you're turning off this flow of data that the subconscious is trying to feed through the, through the thalamus up into the area up into your neocortex it's trying to flow this data up there but your hard your 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 you're, where you're doing the conscious access, you're pushing back and saying, no, I have to say, stay like hyper-focused mm -hmm. on this. I got to count the number of passes, right? Yeah. And so you can see how these hiccups and these mistakes can happen in the way that, that uh, you're processing the data feed. And th that's where 
That is precisely where incentives determine not only what we're looking at, but also what we see, right? Yeah. We, we, at a neurological level, we will not see the six foot gorilla waving his arms in the middle of the frame. If you haven't seen the video on YouTube, it's it's incredible. Yeah, people need to look it up. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's a, an experiment that's been repeated several times. So it's fascinating that we think. I mean, the intuition would be like wherever I look, I'll see the, everything in my frame. But it is in fact heavily contingent on the goal, right? The goal that you're seeking. I guess your goals actually yeah. determine what you see in the world. Um, and which, you know, again, jumping back to Peterson again, I'm a big fan, but he's saying that if you determine in your life, you're not where you want to be, one thing could be, hey, maybe you took a wrong turn, you did something wrong. Another thing could be maybe you're valuing the wrong things. Maybe you're actually yeah. aimed the wrong way. Uh, you've got the wrong goals in life. That can also create, um, that can cause you to get lost, let's say, or not be perceiving the world correctly. Um, and a great a great test for what you just described is ask yourself why five times. Hmm. So if you say, because, and I've used this example, I think on a couple other shows, and this is a big uh, Jim Rowan example. He says, you're on a boat and you're sailing it to a destination, right? And a lot of people get confused by the wind, which they have zero control over. And and whether that's their controls, whether they're controlling the rudder or adjusting the sail. Those are the two things you control. You don't have any control over the wind. So if the wind's blowing directly in your face, mm -hmm. but your mission and your goal is to, is to sail directly into the wind, you can do it if you, you attack. attack into the wind. Yeah. Yeah. You can attack into the wind. But most people, well, not most, but a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll say, this is impossible. <laughs> the wind's blowing in the exact opposite direction of, of where I'm trying to go. Right. Yeah. And therefore I, I give up. I can't do this. So if you're trying to make a business and you hit a roadblock, right? Some people say I give up. Other people start frantically looking around on the boat. Like, all right, well, I can't control the dang wind. So what is it that I do control? Here's this rudder. Let me move that thing around. Okay. Here's the yeah. sail. And then they just, they naturally figure out if they go at a 45 degree angle of the wind, and then zigzag towards the destination, they can actually sail straight into the wind, right? Yes. So now here's, here's, what, here's what you were getting at with your point. And this is why I'm saying, ask yourself why five times? Because you might've set your destination sailing straight into the wind and you arrive at the destination only to say, why the hell did <laughs> I sail here, right? I just spent the last five years of my life sailing here to this island that there's nothing on, there's no food, there's no <laughs> nothing, right? But I did it, and but why did I do it? So, you know, if somebody's somebody's listening to this, here's here's a common goal that, in my opinion, is pretty meaningless if you're not asking yourself why five times. I want to make a million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, why? Why do you want to make a million dollars? Now, when you have to come up with the answer to that question, well, I want to be financially independent. Well, why? Why do you want to be financially? Because then I can go off and go do something like whatever, right? Now, if the why at the end of that is because I really want to spend more time with my family so that I can help them, and it's something that is giving to another person, 
Yeah. It's probably going to be something worth your time. And then when you arrive at the destination, you're going to feel pretty dang good that that was the milestone that you were trying to achieve. But if it ends with you serving yourself, yeah. right? At the end of those five whys, because I, I want to, because I want people to love me or I want influence or I want this or that. And it's like self-serving crap. Yeah. Like you're going to end up probably being insanely dissatisfied with that whole process that you just went to, to arrive at the destination. Yeah. And this, I, I would argue this is where wisdom, traditions, religion, mythology often point because it like science can never tell us what we should do. It can tell us, it yeah. can describe what is, but in terms of setting our values and setting our aims, that's left to this other domain. Um, and yeah, it, it, if you engage in pursuits that are intended to self-satisfy, that's that's what sin is, right? If we lay out, you know, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, wrath lust, greed, envy, pride, whatever they are, they're all selfish behaviors at the end of the day, and they're yeah. inherently meaningless. So they're consuming of energy. Yes. Right. At, yes. The, at the core level, it's consumption of the environment's energy. Right. And then the other is supplying energy to the environment. Yeah. Helping people somehow, right? Creating yeah. something valuable. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's a great, great way to look at it. Um, there's this quote. I'm going to just paraphrase it. I think it's Alfred North Whitehead. I think this is very pertinent. So, we're describing this conscious pursuit to move programs into the unconscious so that we can free up our conscious aim to focus on other things to learn. And I think there's a parallel. My, my thought on reality is that it's, it's fractal, right? It's kind of self-similar at multiple layers. And I think that civilization is sort of a fractal of the individual mind. And so his, his quote is that, and I'm going to paraphrase here, it's common to think that society advances by thinking before acting, but he's, but the precise opposite is true that we actually civilization advances by being able to perform more important actions without having to think about them. Yeah. So we, this is what institutions are, for instance, right? There's an important operation that needs to take place. Maybe it's a bank, right? You need someone to hold traditionally to hold your money because it's gold. It's, it's not informational. Um, and you need to store that operation in a trusted pattern of action, uh, you know, embodied in, in ritual and, and legal structure that allows you to accomplish that aim without having to reinvent the wheel every time. So there's, it's almost like the un, we could say maybe institutional forms in the world are kind of the externalized form of the unconscious. And, the, and if you go before that, you know, we're talking about an economic institution in that case, prior to that, prior to the industrial age, let's say, that tended to be more like mythology where people didn't know how to act in the world. So you consulted the collective unconscious, which was your wisdom tradition or your religion. Um, so I wonder if in, that's that's a real interesting parallel to me is that we individually are trying to do more things without having to think about them. And then us collectively, we're also trying to do more important things without having to think about them. And that is in fact how we advance. We we become more productive in that pursuit. Totally agree. 
And uh, what I would tell you is you were talking about zooming out. If you would zoom in and then go into the biology of how a cell just processes mm-hmm. the flow of materials that comes through the bloodstream and how your transport proteins on that on the outer membrane of your cell allows nutrients to come in and uh, you know the the processed uh, nutrients to go back out mm-hmm. and then you look at how it signals these these uh, proteins to then unwrap themselves the histones unwrap the DNA so that uh, that a uh, transcription protein can then run down the the DNA and cut off you know the 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 code to then take to a ribosome and and pump it through so that Uh it can then manufacture a protein. Like when you look at this whole process, it's exactly what you just described at the macro level, but it's happening at the, at the mini microscopic level inside of the billions of cells inside one person's body all day long. Yeah. Yeah. It's just mind blowing. It is absolutely mind blowing. Um, I've seen YouTube videos about this where they're, they're tiny molecular machines effectively, you know, there's just a few molecules, but it looks like a robot. It looks like someone built this very intelligent robot splicing and dicing DNA and doing all these, all types of things. And so it's as if we have, you know, these hyper specialized little machines within us, yeah. And in a way we're kind of each one of us is a market in and unto ourselves. The the whole like we're we're a city of of organisms, right? Each of us. It, 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 if if a person takes the time to really dig into this and try to understand the big picture of just like how a cell functions and the cueing and the chemical reactions that are taking place that are reflexive again at this level, you would look at that and say that's alien technology. Yeah. Like there's no way in hell like that is even possible for the even at the even at the mitochondria level, right? As it's as it's manufacturing AT, ATP, right? The building blocks of the, the currency of the body, the energy currency of the body. Yeah. And you're just looking at that process inside a mitochondria, which has its own DNA, which is different than your personal DNA. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's totally mind-blowing, dude. It, it's it nuts. Really yeah. It, I just can't help but think in this this fractal pattern where you see it at the biological level, you see it That's at the right. individual level, and then we see it at this collective level as well. And so I just and here's to, the cosmic part. Here's the cosmic part. <laughs> what happens if it's outside of of right. you know in a universe yeah, a universal level? And right? here how does that fit in? <laughs> here's a great quote by I think he I'm not sure what his role is. His name's Carl Friston. Uh, He has a number of really great talks online. You can look it up, but he has this quote. And this is in regards to, if you've ever seen a picture of a brain up close, the the neural Mm -hmm. pathways, and then you see a photo of the cosmic microwave background, which is the echo of the Big Bang. It's basically the furthest reaches of the universe. They look almost identical, right? It's, it's, It's truly scary. And he has this quote and he goes, quote, the anatomy of any system has to contain within it a model of the environment in which that system is immersed, unquote. Mm-hmm. So it's as if our brain, I mean, it, at a 
very fundamental level looks almost exactly like the universe at the most macro level, a level yeah. that we've never, we could never see, we could never hope to see before the invention of, you know, modern um, telescopes and whatnot. Yeah. So there's, there's a deep connection here. It's like this, this, I don't know what you call it, a fractal pattern to sort of bubbling and repeating itself. And we are a part of it. We are part yes. of that pattern. Yes. I mean, you could look at every human being on the planet and almost treat them like one neuron in the brain. And so like when you look at Google and yeah. you see what people are, are searching for and you're looking at all those things, it's like one giant brain activity. Um, and here's, here's where I could throw in the, the Bitcoin thing. When you, when you study the brain, you know that there's this biological value process that's taking place in order to code the various nodes in the brain in order to have a normally functioning human being. Um, there's this amazing story. I don't know if it was in this book or not uh, that we're talking about, but um, I think it was in this book. But there was a gentleman out in the West in, in the United States who was a stand-up individual. Um, uh, you know, had pretty much done everything right in his life, was a model citizen. And he, he went on like a shooting spree later on in his life mm, yeah. and killed a bunch of people. Was it in this book? Yes. Or, yep. I yeah. think so. So correct me if I'm, if I'm misstating any of this. Um, so anyway, when they went, everyone was just, did not understand it. Like the neighbors, the family, like what? Like, it makes no sense that this person would go on a shooting spree. Well, they go back to the person's house and the gentleman had literally written letters. And he said, I know there's something wrong with me that was not here three years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm having these, these desires to kill people. And nothing like that had ever been a desire of mine ever before. And I'm, a, I'm scared that I'm actually going to start acting on this. If I would ever act on this and if I would ever die, please examine my brain to try to understand if maybe there was some type of disease or tumor or something that mm, has yeah. caused me to function differently. Well, lo and behold, they did do this. And, you know, the, they analyzed his brain. He, he was killed, I believe, in the, in the shooting that took place. And there was a tumor in the, in the section of his brain that uh, would, uh, would cause a person to have poor signaling and, and chemical reactions and, and, and how their biological value is being managed. Mm -hmm. and so for me, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, how many other people on this planet right now do I pass and maybe they're a little bit different. Maybe they're a little strange or whatever, or maybe they're just somebody just begging for money on the street. And I walk past that person in the past and I would say, what a bum, right? Mm -hmm. What a loser that person uh, does. They don't deserve my money. Right. And I'm not saying that people need to go out there and start incentivizing, you know, this type of uh, giving money to people. I'm not saying any of that. I guess all I'm saying is like people need to have some empathy because no. I really think that at, at a fundamental level, there's a lot of people out there that probably do have some, some terrible 
biological value signaling that's happening inside their brains that's not allowing them to make maybe as sound of decisions as the people that might be listening to this conversation. And, uh, and it just makes you think about yourself. Like, Hey, maybe, maybe the reason I, um, I'm more emotional or, um, I have no emotion or whatever is actually in the, the biological piece of how your lobes had developed as a kid combined with the environmental factors that conditioned you to be the way you are. And it just, it, I think the whole thing for me as I'm, as, I, as I was studying all this was just like, you just have a much deeper um, empathy for other people and just maybe a little bit more patience with, with other people that are around you. Yeah, agreed completely. And it, it gets very murky between the nature and the nurture, right? Because right. it's like what you experience as a child could have reformed your architecture in a certain way that sent you down a certain path or gave you a certain predilection. Um, and yeah, it, 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 I don't know. For me, it, it's, it makes it more and more difficult to try and disentangle these things. It's like everything is connected ultimately talk about getting cosmic. I mean, that's kind of what all, you know, a lot of philosophies of old would say that everything is mind or everything is connected. There's some unity beneath the surface here. And I think modern uh, neuroscience, at least in this book, starts to get at that. And so the well, thing about it, Robert, like if, if I'm it, like we said earlier that the five people that you hang out with are the ones that you're going to be mm-hmm. most likely become like, well, all those people have, have experienced an environment that has coded their brain to act in a certain way. And then I am interacting with that other person. And part of my coding is now becoming part of their coding. And, mm-hmm. and my, my goals and objectives are somewhat becoming their goals and objectives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see this with any teen that goes off to college and they come back after year yeah. one and they're like a completely different person because they're getting coded by other kids that have... Yeah very different uh mindsets goals they're not in the house anymore like yeah it's just yeah it's key to the maturation process too right for the kids to separate from the parents and start to i guess assimilate these new patterns and programs um so yeah the and i'm just going to throw this out there is probably like a general background for the rest of our conversation here is that if there is this fractal structure to reality, which I guess we're kind of making an assumption there is, but if you look at it mathematically, there is in many, many um, aspects of nature. Um, and for people that aren't familiar with that word, I would say fractal geometry is kind of like the geometry of nature. You know, there's no straight lines or triangles or perfect circles in nature or very few of these things. Uh, nature tends to be jagged. It, it has this, um, self-similar repeating pattern. And there's a lot of work done by um, Mandelbrot on this, who, who originally introduced me to, to fractal mathematics, which is a super interesting space. But so if that is the case, then the, the socioeconomic whole, the, the market that we are of human beings interacting and exchanging with one another, um, would that then mean that prices are like neurotransmitters Mm-hmm. Or maybe money is the neurotransmitter that we're actually signaling to one another what we value in the world. So money becomes like an, an index for our valuations and our aims. Yes. And so when you would look at where we are today with a completely broke monetary system, like to the nth degree broke on a global scale, yeah. 
because there's no peg. There's no unit that is pegging uh, uh, labor data. That's how I look mm-hmm. at it. Like, uh, you know, people are familiar with a dollar. People are familiar with a Bitcoin. It's labor data. If you yeah. have one of those, it represents stored labor that has been performed. And if I then hand that over to you, it means something. But if, if the value of this stored labor is diminishing at a breakneck pace, what happens is just like in your brain, if mm-hmm. the biological value system is off, well, now you got somebody who's, you know, out in public and they're, and they're howling at the moon and, and doing these strange behaviors that don't make any sense to people that have a normally functioning biological value system that's functioning inside their brain. And that's how I view financial markets today is if you are constantly manipulating the cost of capital down to nothing, to zero, you're saying, if I borrow money and it doesn't cost me anything um, to do that, that doesn't make any sense. Right, right. <laughs> and that's what central banks have been doing by bidding the bond market and stepping in and, and manipulating the fixed income market. Now they're starting to manipulate just money into the hands of, of anybody and everybody which mm-hmm. further compounds the need for the fixed income market to have more quantitative easing. Like all of those things have this reflexive loop, which involves the money just getting further and further debased. And then you talk about it being competitively um, done on a global scale between nation states. And you start to understand real fast, we need a lobotomy globally. <laughs> <laughs> and Bitcoin supplies the lobotomy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the collective mind has become corrupted because we've poisoned the neurotransmitter or distorted the neurotransmitter, whatever you want to call it. And it's at, so there's this, the yin yang thing I'm seeing in the brain here is we have conscious, unconscious control, conscious, it's much more yang. It's assertive. It can go different directions. It's controllable and controlling. But the unconscious is is yin. It's very, um, it's dark. It's mysterious. We can't access all of it. It contains. It's much more encompassing than conscious awareness. You know, you can mm-hmm. maybe store a phone number in your head and your conscious awareness. Your unconscious stores everything else, like just infinitely yeah. more, basically. So, is it, then in that collective domain, it's almost as if the conscious aspect. Maybe that's the state where it actually tries to consciously um, contradict the market at times, where it's like the market's selecting this, but the state yeah, would step that in. Be, yeah, that's kind of a good example because the, the state is kind of like directing the body, the human body, right? Mm-hmm. Of a collective body of where it's trying to go. And, and the literal bodies, right? Yeah, On a military yeah. standpoint. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a kind of a close uh, parallel. And then in the background, you have all the, the people that are providing those, those signals. Um, now, so when you, when you study the brain, one of the really important, the, the grand central station of the brain is the thalamus. And this is such a cool story. I've got to tell you this story. So there's a toilet paper test. I don't think this was in the book that you read. There's a toilet paper test where if you take two toilet paper tubes and you put them up to your eyes so that you can only see, you know, whatever picture would be displayed in one and and, uh, 
you could put another picture in the other one. What they found is, let's say you take two very different uh, pictures. One could be a picture of a house with a white background. And let's say the other picture could be of a basketball with a white background. And you put those toilet paper tubes on so that when the person's looking at these two images, all they see are those two images, but they're different images in, in each eye. And so what do you think the person sees when they're looking at something that has total rivalry like that? Okay. Well, if the pictures are somewhat meaningless to the person, what happens is the person will only see one of the two images. That's all they have conscious access to. So I would just see a house. That'd be it. I don't see any basketball whatsoever. It's not even there. And then like five seconds later, it just, it, it almost seemed like somebody had changed the picture over to a basketball. And then I'll see the basketball for five seconds. And then it'll flip back to a house for five seconds. And in my brain, I'm interpreting, I am seeing both of these images. When they do uh, imaging of the brain, what they see is that the brain is processing, the subconscious brain is actually processing both of those images simultaneously with equal magnitude. But the thalamus is only allowing one of those images to proceed forward into the neocortex where the person has uh, conscious access. Mm. Now, this is really neat. If they take those pictures, okay, and they actually display them on like a video screen so that there's a refresh rate, like uh, 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second, okay, and they swap out one of the frames, and I think for 30 or 60 frames per second, if they swap out one of the, one of the 60 frames and you were looking at a screen that just was displaying, let's just say a basketball image in one of the 60 frames was something completely different, right? If a person looks at that screen, they cannot notice that, right? They'll just tell you, oh yeah, there's a basketball on the screen. Did you see any flash? Did you see? No, I didn't. It's just a basketball, right? That's what the person will tell you when they see something like that. So now going back to this toilet paper tube test, when they've got two different images in each eye, and they put one frame, one frame like out of 60 or 30. I can't remember if it was a 30 or 60. They swapped one frame on one image. And then the person looked, looked at both of those images. You know what happened? The person would only see the one image. And it was the one that had the messed up frame. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't oscillating back and forth between the mm-hmm. pictures. It was just, just the basketball. That's all you'd continue to, to see. Because the brain was picking up, your subconscious brain was picking up and saying, there's something off about that image on the left, and I'm going to continue to display that because it's not right. There's something wrong. And the thalamus is controlling that input and saying, I I don't know why, but there's something off with this and you need to continue to see it. Okay. So now you have to ask yourself. What the hell is this thalamus that I have no control over feeding my conscious access that's happening in the background from my subconscious when maybe I have a hundred different things that are being sensed in the body right now? And what is it allowing through that bottleneck choke point to, to gain conscious access to? 
So good would, luck with that one. I, have no, <laughs> I, I it's it's insane, right? I, I just don't. It, it's just fascinating to me. Is it then? It's drawing attention to the anomaly or the error. Is that right? Yes. Well, it's, it, a it shows you how sensitive your subconscious is. Yeah. Okay. That what you're telling yourself that you're seeing, your body as a whole, as a collective, your mm. brain as a whole, as a collective is processing way more than what you think you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. period. Yeah. Right. Cause that wouldn't be possible. So right. your subconscious is knows that there's something off there, even though your conscious access would continue to tell you there's nothing different about that. This calls to mind the, actually the definition of intelligence I got from talking to Jeff Booth. And he said that intelligence at its most basic level is just error correction. Mm -hmm. And that we are, again, when that conscious mind is trying to perform a specific operation, it's trying to identify any errors in the process and correct them so that it passes that, I guess, back to the, the unconscious error yeah. free, maybe. But the, yeah. but the it sounds like the conscious and unconscious mind working are working together to identify and resolve errors, which is a really interesting definition of intelligence or consciousness, because that's exactly what a market does, too. A yeah. market is trying to resolve errors, right? If, if that's right, you know, the classic earthquake in Chile, copper is disrupted, the price goes up, everyone gets the signal to either use substitutes, produce more copper, or, you know, it, it's resolving errors through the price. Signal. So here's, here's a pet peeve of mine. You'll hear people argue about the idea of uh, efficient market hypothesis. Mm. Okay. We can look at the brain. And in the example that I just provided, mm -hmm. if you believe in an efficient market hypothesis, you, you say, well, that's impossible. The brain can't make that mistake. Mm -hmm. But we know it's making the mistake. Yeah. We know for a fact it's making the mistake. Right. Right. And so I would say as we jump over to the example that you just provided, a person that's, you know, subscribes to the efficient market hypothesis is going to say, it's impossible for the market to misprice this. Right. Well, let me tell you, I, and people know because I keep bringing this up and, and I'm not doing it in a braggart way, but like, hey, I had an opinion before the having happened. You know, you and I were on, on 11 May talking about it and I put my money where my mouth was. I went out and bought options and like all those things, just like a lot of other people, because my opinion was the market was not efficient and it didn't have a clue as to what the heck was about to happen. That's right. Now, we're saying that we were right right? There's no way to prove that we were right um, definitively because you could make the argument that it wasn't any of those factors that we were considering back then and it was some other external factor, right? That's how a person could argue the opposite side of that. But um, I just don't buy the efficient market hypothesis. I think it, in most cases, it is very valid, but there are instances and opportunities where it is not um, and those yeah. are the those are the instances I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree completely, especially as it relates to something like Bitcoin being assimilated into the marketplace. It's just never been seen before. Yeah. Right. Like had there been multiple monetization events throughout human history, maybe the market would be better at pricing in Bitcoin halvings, for instance. But when there's no corollary that it just it it it's all the information is not priced in. It's just not possible. Um, yeah. And I think, so the other thing that comes to mind here is that the, the reflexivity that you mentioned between money mm -hmm. and mind, 
it, the money is almost an extension of the mind in a way. Mm-hmm. It, we're, we're all wiring our minds together through the price signal through money. And then if we, if we consciously corrupt the money, which is effectively what we're doing with central banking, right? We're taking yes. by declaration of fiat, I'm going to overturn what the free market has selected or would select as money and dictate that this fiat currency is money instead of gold or Bitcoin or anything else. Um, we are corrupting that. We're corrupting the, the extension of our mind. And it seems like that reverberates backwards, you know, reflexively into our individual minds. And yeah. so this is where you get into all, you know, the fiat food and fiat behavior and fiat business models um, that, that, that pervades in the modern age. Well, if the, uh, think about it in the, in the biology context. If the biological valuation system in the brain is off in one area, that will have a reflexive impact on the other lobes over time. And so when people are talking about the fiat food and, and that kind of stuff, it just makes sense that that would be what would come out of a broken monetary valuation system. It totally makes sense that the education system shouldn't cost $200,000 plus to go get a four-year education from you know, a, a majority of classes that you could just learn online for, you know, or on the Sailor Academy for free, right? Like, <laughs> right. like it just kind of, it all starts to really kind of click together and make sense if if you subscribe to the you know this this fundamental idea that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, this is where, again, the name of the show is the What Is Money Show because I just it has so many damn answers to that question. What is money? Now, if we call it an extension of our mind or or reflexive tool for the mind, these other pieces start to click together. It's like yeah. What, why has the world gone so far off the rails the past 50 years? Well, maybe it's because we broke the economic neurotransmitter we call money. Yeah. And we're just lost now. So 